I'm Chris. This is Journeys in Podcasting, and we'll be connecting from some different points of the world at this point. I'm in Poland at the moment, and today we'll be talking about um, hacking the writing lab and putting maker uh, activities into your writing. Um, we'll be talking to Angela Stockman, who's uh, our visiting author today, and we'll just do a quick go around so you know who's in the digital space here. Hi, I'm Angela Stockman, and I'm the author of Make Writing and Hacking the Writing Workshop, Redesign with Making in Mind. I am a teacher of writing who facilitates um, a lot of professional learning experiences and coaches writing um, teachers in schools and classrooms throughout the United States, and I do some work in Canada as well. My name is Austin Levinson. I'm a second grade teacher at Colegio Norgana in Bogota, Colombia, South America. And we use uh, Teachers College Writing Workshop as our writing program, if you will, or at least some guidelines. And I've been involved in maker activities and makerspace for several years, um, having attended a Project Zero conference a few years ago in Atlanta. I spent a lot of time with your blog and was really impressed at your visit to the Reggio Emilia program and some of your reflections that came out of that. And then hopefully we'll pull out some yeah. of your past experiences writing, uh, running a writing lab as well. I want to refer to a post that you had called um, in your Reggio Reflections called Weaving Rather Than Walking the Line. And I'm going to quote directly from your blog sure. here. It's, they studied the history of the place. They listened to stories and wrote their own. They made maps, gathered data, and reflected on the meaning of that space. They made meaning using a wild mix of modalities. And the results weren't communicated via flat static screens or through test of essays or tightly executed projects. When I read this, I was thinking of um, Dewey's idea of experience and his ideas of impulsion, that what gives our episodic sensory moments meaning is our reflection, um, and that objects in their wild mix of modalities carry meaning that's waiting to be unlocked. I would also add here, and I'm not sure if you have this experience of Gardner's multiple intelligence theory of communicating across mediums and Reggio Emilia's 100 Languages of Children. In your experience, why is this contextualized experience so important, along with keeping all channels of modality open for expression? Both are very time-consuming and perceived by many as... Well, I guess what I find really interesting is the notion that things that are efficient and fast and easy are somehow preferred or better than things that are slow and inefficient and hard. And as somebody who supports writers and teachers of writing, I'm not really interested in what's fast or easy um, or, or um, uh, you know, efficient necessarily. I'm interested in helping people create things that matter. And um, I, I often find that when it comes to creating things that matter, that takes a lot of time and it is inefficient. And um, it, it is something that is really hard. And so I value those things. Um, and it's uncomfortable, I think, to have those conversations with teachers who perhaps have been led in some way, shape, or form or arrived at their own conclusion that efficient and easy is best. Um, particularly, you know, when so many of us are kind of living on a clock. And so, you know, one of the things I appreciate about the units of study is they allow you to go slow. 
um, we're talking about producing one piece. Well, it, in the lower grades, it's more than that. But as kids get older, it's one piece every 10 weeks, which I think is a little bit more realistic um, than what I was asking writers to produce when I first entered the classroom. And so um, I think that that time is important in Reggio schools and in the work that I do um, with teachers, making sure that that kids are encouraged to use diverse materials and resources and modalities is a lot about perspective seeking and um, looking at things through different lenses and from different point of views so that we can deepen our understanding and also challenge our assumptions and ultimately produce something that I think is richer and more complex and more satisfying um, to produce and I think even to consume or, or to read. Um, eventually, and perhaps it's a piece of it too, is that I tend to find that things that are not necessarily fast or easy in the end tend to be more satisfying, even though they're hard fought. I'm I talking. I can't hear you. Can't oh, there you hear go. me. So, uh, we can do, I'm getting a lot of distortion over here um, I, and a lot of flicker of the screen. So one thing we can do to make that go away is that when you're not speaking, so like Austin, when she's talking, if you could um, mute your mic and you just scroll across your screen and there'll be a button at the top, which is like a button that will um, streamline the audio a little bit. Cool. Okay. Um, yeah. So along this idea, you mentioned this idea of units of study. And this is a perfect kind of segue into this discussion of prepackaged learning units. In that same blog post, you write that Monica's students didn't travel a linear line through a prefabricated Cooley unit that she developed behind closed doors without her students' input. Rather, she and her students wove a rich learning experience around the Cooley, a place of great historical, spiritual, and environmental importance in their community. It was clear that they pursued shared learning targets, but what emerged from the pursuit was far more complex and compelling. Many teachers, in my experience, are uncomfortable letting go of this efficiency of seemingly assured prepackaged learning outcomes that units of study often advertise. I, I think of Daniel Kahneman's where he describes the world where we're consuming predetermined packages and then setting stages for the wild experiences to happen. A good road trip, for example, is never about getting to the destination, but about all the sidetracks and, and diversions you have along the way. How do you communicate this to teachers, administrators, uh, and the pressure of these, what I call monopsychometrics, and the criteria that everyone gets judged by from their superiors? I, th I think you have to turn your mic back on. Sorry about that. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Better? Okay. One of the things that I think um, I learned from experience and kind of a lot of it over the last decade of working with teachers is that my responsibility as a professional learning facilitator is not necessarily to arrive with my theories or my answers, or even sometimes my experiences, but my responsibility is to get to know the people that are in front of me. And it's very different every single day and every single place that I go. And I actually work with, you know, Monica is a really good example. She is a seasoned, incredibly thoughtful um, teacher who is constantly learning more about the craft of teaching writing. And I have to be sensitive 
sensitive to the fact that a lot of the teachers that I support are, you know, pulled in 50,000 directions and they don't have Monica's experience, even have Monica's interest in learning how to teach she does. And so there are people who will come to me and say, I need a path to follow. I need a GPS, you know, those side trips and those diversions, they are beautiful things. But even when I take a road trip, I'm using Waze or I'm using Maps um, to take me there. So I don't necessarily have harsh criticism um, for people who choose to support teachers by providing them programs they've asked for, especially if those programs are high quality programs and the units of study are kind of the gold standard um, for teaching writing. What I appreciate and what I've heard Lucy Calkins say a million times is that it's not her intention to impose a curriculum on people that they have to follow like a script. Her intention is to provide people a framework that helps them get acquainted with how to teach writing workshop and gives them a level of confidence so that they can jump off from that. The challenge that I see is that when people are, the leadership around it matters and how that program is being communicated, the purpose of it and how it can be implemented and how people might begin to adapt it and then eventually begin becoming more, far more eclectic in their own practice. These things, that leadership piece and how the programs are situated inside of schools is hugely important. And if we're creating a culture where assessment and growth matter more than evaluation and judgment, that's, I mean, the, the line there seems like it's a very fine one, but it, it's really pretty significant. And I can feel it the minute I walk into a system where people are kind of at. Do you trust your teachers? Um, and are you able to provide them the rich resources and especially the time that they're going to need to get better at teaching writing, because that is the work of a career. That is not the work of a string of staff development days um, or even the work of a, a handful of years. Getting better at this is, it's, it is tough stuff. And so when people tell me that they need a map, I don't question that as long as the map is really well developed. Um, what I do, you know, worry about are the people who fail to grow capacity over time and why that happens. And there are so many reasons why that happens. And it's not simply because someone is lazy or disengaged or not a great teacher or, you know, anything about their character. There are all sorts of reasons why people don't get better at teaching writing that are really valid and that I think are, are worth exploring, including how many directions we're being pulled in and how much time we have for professional learning and collaboration and how often people like me are really taking the time to listen to the interests and needs of the people in the room and craft our work accordingly rather than just simply coming in, lifting and dropping some prefab staff development, you know, module on them because, you know, a lot of people do. And so I think it, it, that is a really profound question and one that's worth exploring in a lot of different contexts, I think. Well, and, and from the point of view of a teacher in the trenches, um, I've heard um, colleagues alongside of me directly say, if I'm given 17 lessons to teach, I'm incapable of not teaching all of them in order. And this is of <sighs> experience who have a great amount of passion and charisma, but they take the engagement piece and throw it out the window because they feel that it's a, it's a lesson by lesson program. And yeah. so, Easier said than done. Um, Ed, Dr. Ed Ellis from the University of Kansas taught me that if you want to get teachers to try new things, there have to be two qualities 
in those new things. One is it has to be such an incredible idea that they can't resist it. And two, the barrier to entry has to be almost non-existent. If you don't have yep. both with the program. And so if we go back to the metaphor that we're talking about and going on a trip and we do have a map, but if you're a nature lover and you could actually see from the road as you're driving through the mountains, you could actually physically see a gorgeous waterfall off to one side. Even if we're going on that trip, we do want to possibly think about diverging, going off that waterfall and then coming back on. Or if you're a roller coaster lover, you can actually see the roller coaster from the road. So the trip metaphor has its relevance, but we can't be completely blind in following ways. There actually was a case of a woman in Portland, Oregon, a few years ago who followed her GPS and it led her to go down the ramp and yeah. into the bay. And she drove her car into sure. the bay because she was following the GPS. So I think it is relevant that we have a map. Absolutely. But we, we know, and I think that there's a resurgence in the importance of engagement. And if we don't take into account the engagement piece, then we're really just going through the motions. And if the students are engaged, we know from brain-based research how much more they're going to learn, how much more they're going to make connections, how much more passion they're going to bring to it. So I think that they're, it's not an easy task to get teachers off of, that, off of that very direct linear map. But I think that some of the ways I've seen it work effectively, lab sites where people are doing some things that are different, but we know that are effective, uh, modeling and professional development, things that are not necessarily just following lessons, and then having administrators, in addition to telling them, celebrating some things um, teachers are doing and showing student results. And I think that those are some things that yeah. can help effective filters of teachers. I agree. Um, and I'm certainly not advocating for blind adherence to programs. One of the things that's really fascinating to me, if we're going to continue to follow that metaphor, is I'm always interested in what inspires people to take their eyes off the road long enough to notice the roller coaster um, or to uh, be able to notice the beautiful landscape. And what I tend to find is that... Um, the timing piece is huge. So if we have an administrator that's expecting people to arrive at a certain destination in a certain amount of time, that makes it hard for people to actually be willing to, to kind of look off course and be able to appreciate um, those divergent pathways. I also think that teachers struggle to understand um, the difference and to feel that they have permission um, to distinguish between adopting a program, adapting a program, and designing their own curriculum. And scaffolding people between those three things and explicitly helping people do that and see, because I think a lot of people, especially if they're not curriculum designers, they're afraid of that if they, they're going to disrupt alignment in a way that creates gaps for learners. And um, I think that we can explicit that sort of deviance or divergence um, in ways that even the program designers wouldn't necessarily argue with. Uh, so I think, I think that that's worthy work. It's good work. Cool. I'm going to hit you up with another question. Um, you talked about this idea um, in that same blog post. You said that we begin by understanding that we each hold our own thread and we begin by welcoming opportunities for weaving and we get, begin by sharing the fabric that emerges from our, our learning of the work. In this metaphor, um, what I feel like I'm being, um, so I'm sorry, so you say when I bump against these ideas up against the way things have always been done inside of more traditional classrooms and schools, necessary shifts in practice begin to emerge. 
it's quite like me to have a detailed how-to inside of posts like these, but I'm no longer sure that's a good thing anymore. So I believe this relates to what you're at, this idea of consuming prepackaged units of study. I know that term comes very loaded because it's very tied to the TC program, but there's a lot in here respecting individuality while learning about dispersed teaching and learning, not overstacking the instructional manual. I have this faint conspiracy against learning notion in the back of my head that the more we purchase programs and units of study, the less we're owning the learning experience. In some ways, it feels like kind of a cop-out, a top-down teacher-proof model. And of course, nothing is going to be teacher-proof. Teachers are capable of ruining the best of programs or making magic out of bad instructables. Creating this threaded community in a classroom and teachers' own learning experience. Can you repeat your just the end your question? I lost that piece. Yeah. So what I heard was kind of two things um, that I think are, are are related. This idea of threading the community, of respecting the individuality and individuality in every student, while at the same time teaching this idea of dis dispersed knowledge and teaching, teaching and learning. And then the second is this idea of teachers owning the management of their learning, uh, meaning that as yeah. you were saying before, they have the freedom and space. To, if we're going to use the metaphor of the road trip, to not only take the divergent path, but get out of the car and walk through the flower field and get some experiential experiences. Yeah. Thing is, um, I don't, I work in schools and have worked in schools that have chosen to adopt a program, including programs like the units of study. And when they adopt those programs, I tap other consultants to do the work and I kind of exit the situation because what I'm most passionate about is helping teachers design what's called curriculum opportunities for kids. And here, um, what I'm finding is that it makes sense to talk about two powerful things with teachers that ensure alignment while enabling a lot of experimentation and a lot of voice and choice and cultivating a lot of learning for teachers and for kids. Um, the first is the notion of making sure that we're studying and teachers perhaps are working with kids to define the form that we might produce. Um, to be writing narratives, for instance, and we're all going to take some time to investigate narrative writing and share what we're learning about it and replicate the best of that learning in our own work as we produce a narrative. We're also going to take care to separate the form, narrative writing, from um, the product that we're creating. So all of us are going to write narratives, but you might decide that yours is going to be a puppet show. And I might decide that my narrative is going to actually show up on my blog and someone else might actually produce and publish, you know, an anthology of short stories or books around it. And another group of kids might flip it into a script and perform it, you know, for a live audience. So we're all working to write great narratives and we can all study the craft of narrative writing, but the prunes on the, on the floor, on the design room floor, on the studio floor, because what really matters to the audience is the product and the product can take on a million different forms. That That's kind of transformational for a lot of teachers to talk about the fact that you can take your unit of study around narrative writing and change up the final product and give kids a lot of voice and choice around that. The other piece that I find is that's very freeing 
is to um, encourage teachers to embrace and really unpack and understand learning targets. Um, it's not necessary for you to teach the unit of study exactly the way that it's been designed by someone else or to teach those targets in order, what they're called teaching points in the units of study. What's important is that you understand what that target is and that your kids, more importantly, understand what the targets are. You know, what does it mean to produce great narrative writing? That provides us a lot of choice around how we actually teach those lessons. Um, not only the form that the lesson takes, you could flip to an inquiry model and, or a student-driven model, you know, for learning. Um, and also the resources that you use and your timing and the way that you're ordering those lessons. So you, I find that if we can reach agreements about forms and reach agreements about learning targets, the rest of it can be completely driven and informed by kids and teachers. And uh, there can be a lot of experimentation there and a lot of opportunities to take those, those, uh, accept those diversions that come along the way. So related to that, uh, I, I feel like places that I have worked often have this overwhelming pressure to lay out your curriculum in a very, linear method of, you know, which standards are you teaching at which time? How are you going to assess those? How will these six classrooms use the same common formative assessments and summative assessments? It is very difficult now to step back and say the way I've always kind of approached it is sort of put three things on the plate and we'll be teaching all three of these things over the next two to three weeks and we'll make sure that we reach we're not exactly sure um, how we're going to get at them when we start. Um, manage or do you even work with schools that are much more sort of linear thinking in that method? Yeah, uh, all of the schools that I work with are standards-based schools. And all of the schools that I work with are very much held accountable for testing. Um, and helping kids perform well on standardized tests. And so I work in situations that are driven by high accountability and performance really matters, and they all have formative assessments in place. I think what it's challenged us to think about is what's a worthy formative assessment? And it, when we work with standards, they become opportunities for us to get better at what we do because God's honest truth is, is I want kids to produce high quality work. And so our standards, when I look at the ones that we use, they're pretty lean and they're pretty elegant for English language arts and for writing specifically. And when I look at them, they're the standards I would have had anyway for my students. Formative assessments don't need to look like tests. And assessment is not a, is not a thing. It's not a noun. It's a verb. And so we can capture an awful lot of assessment information through observation and interview and by gathering artifacts of learning that demonstrate growth toward those learning targets. Um, our formative assessments then can be actually authentic pieces of writing that kids are producing for real audiences. They don't have to look like these archaic tests that, that people give. And in fact, 
you know, our state doesn't want it to necessarily look like that. They want kids producing real things for real people. They, they want them to have a voice and choice. They also want them to meet the standards of quality. And I think that all of those things can live in harmony, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of professional learning support to help teachers um, appreciate that and feel like they have the permission to do it that way and then give them the tools that build their capacity to do that. I much, I value documentation um, much more than grading. Um, and most of the ways that I'm helping people measure growth these days are around using qualitative rather than quantitative measures and which allow kids to do real stuff for real people and have a lot of voice and choice. Yes, so you mentioned this in your uh, YouTube videos when you talk about documentation, and this is a perfect point. I'd love to hear a bit more about this because you said like a few things that really had impact to me. One was this idea that um, when you approach documentation, you're talking about three different things, well, different methods, small moments documented, documented meaning it's or a single episode that's going to be part of a series, which I'm sure a process and product of a learning trajectory. And then you also talk about having in mind the before, during, and after learning. Will this documentation happen before the learning happens? during or after, um, how can you unpack those a little bit and what those might look like? Sure. So the videos that you're watching are actually part of um, uh, weekly updates that I'm sharing in a closed Facebook group for teachers who are interested in doing a documentation project of their own this year. And the first question that I ask them, just because a lot of them are really new to this work and I don't want to overwhelm them, um, the work of documentation and the learning there is is huge and it's relatively new too. Um, and so uh, in order to get everybody kind of moving in a way that doesn't overwhelm and scare people off, I've asked them to think about what are you interested in studying in your students and when would you like to do that and to what degree do you want to sink into that work? Do you want to take a lesson that you're teaching tomorrow on a writing um, element and during the independent writing time, document what you see kids doing in that small moment of time, reflect on it, and then decide, um, you know, what your hunches are going to be based on that very small data set? Or do you want to study that same topic over the course of the entire first semester or over the course of the entire year? Deciding whether or not you're going to kind of take a quick dip or a deep dive into documentation is an important first step because it sets you up to plan your documentation work well. I'm a firm believer in gathering multiple data points and studying things over time if we're going to draw conclusions about them that shift our instruction. But that can be a tall order for someone who's brand new to documentation. And so oftentimes beginners will only want to kind of get their feet wet with it by using the documentation process in a very small moment of time because they're really reflecting on themselves as practitioners. I'm going to learn more about myself and the process of documentation and what's easy and what's hard and how it works um, in this small moment of time before I launch into a massive experience with it um, and get quickly overwhelmed. So that's the distinction that I was trying to make there. Yeah, I feel like you're um, 
I've, I've read the visible learners and Austin, I took a course together online on this theme as well. And very fascinating because I've always approached documentation as the creation of learning artifacts. So kind of thinking it more of not just for teacher um, getting better at knowing how yeah. you're teaching, but also like using it as an actual learning artifact. And captured multiple ways where it is the formative here. We're showing and reflecting on with students you know, why what they did was so cool and how, you know, what our next steps are for learning. You also mentioned another thing that fascinated yeah. me. It's the idea of of grounded documentation, of, of using a ground up method, of having your purpose yeah. uh, defined beforehand versus a grounded theory of just start collecting, start collecting the amazing things happening in this process of learning and finding out what maybe is in there that you didn't plan for or see before. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. When I did my own documentation project for the first time, um, I started almost probably 10 years ago now. And, um, I had this writer studio that existed outside of the school system and I had kids from all different schools and I had teachers who were coming from some different places, not a ton of them, but some really inspiring people. And, um, the stone in my shoe at that time was resistant writers. And I really wanted to figure out how I could support them better. And so I wasn't sure what my guiding question was going to be. And I didn't have this narrow focus and I wasn't going to create all of these artificial opportunities to investigate resistance with writers. I just started documenting what I was noticing anytime I saw resistance and especially when I saw a, a shift in a kid who went from being a resistant writer to being a kid who was demonstrating an enthusiasm for writing and also producing volume and quality. Like what was happening there? I didn't know. And I just started documenting. I took a ton of pictures. I conferred with kids a lot and interviewed them a lot. I asked a ton. My focus was loose but tight. Resistant writers isn't a free-for-all. I have I have a, a focus there. It's a topic. But I certainly did not investigate the research. I did not read professional literature. I wasn't talking with people about this. I was learning from my students as much as I could. So after about five years, I had about 900 points of data. Um, and I basically used affinity mapping and I coded that data. And what was really interesting was that was the year of the first maker fair in San Francisco. I had no idea what maker education was, was not at all interested in it at that time. Um, and that year I started drafting what essentially became make writing. And I was reading, I think it was in make magazine. Um, someone had sent me this piece about how what was coming up in this maker fair and getting translated now into education looked very much like I was noticing what I was noticing with my own writers in my workshop. Um, and I remember saying to my husband, oh my God, these people are, are starting to notice that this maker stuff is really relevant in classrooms. And that's exactly what's going on in my writing studio. It's exactly the same thing. Um, what I'm noticing is that if kids can be using mediums and modalities and loose parts, things other than print to, to build stories, to build arguments, to, you know, to, to do research and information writing and poetry, um, 
that kids who claim to hate writing suddenly are totally okay with it. If I let them move around and especially work one little bit at a monkey around with one small bit, um, they have stamina for writing in ways that they didn't before. Uh, and, and there were a lot of other findings is that my theories were grounded in the data that came from talking with and studying my students. And that's very different than traditional research, which starts typically with a tight guided question and predetermined um, experiments and measures and tools that are often informed by the research we've already done. And what was really fascinating for me is as I've learned more about guided um, or grounded theory is um, what appealed to me is the notion that when we read the literature about best practice, it can create a bias that blinds us to other discoveries. And there will be no innovation and there will be no nothing new if all we keep doing is taking what's deemed best practice, lifting it, dropping it into our classrooms and just replicating what's already been done. And, and how almost diminishing that is to students in a way like if the people that we're trying to serve best and the people we're trying to impact are children why are we not talking with children and learning from children what serves them best and what helps them move forward most um and so all of those things sort of fascinated me but that's kind of what distinguishes um grounded theory from more traditional things and to talk about that, um, right now we have, a, we have a new principal here who has really um, taken the idea of growth mindset that we are trying to promote in students and really push that onto teachers. Push it that if you're going to be a teacher, you need to have a growth mindset as well. And how can we ever teach students that? And so what you're describing, Angela, is exactly, I think, where we need to be. But I think my principal, my current principal, is finding a way to get some people off the starting block. Starting block. One interesting example is that here – um, we start in pre-K, which is we call it K-4, and they never until this year actually looked at data of where the kids were coming in and reading in K-4. And the kinder four teachers assumed that they're coming in with nothing and that they're going to continue with phonemic awareness and songs and some things of that nature. Well, they're discovering, they actually discovered uh, upon looking at the data that there are actually six students who are already reading in kinder four before starting pre-K and all except 10 students have some or most of the letter sounds. So we're actually in the process of undergoing a pretty transformational shift and the growth mindset is going to be key. Um, some of the teachers are, are going to have a difficult time with being responsive to students. And what you're describing is exactly where I think we all need to be is responsive to our students and not stay, not focusing on teaching. It's student centered coaching, student centered teaching. Um, and that's, that's tricky for some. I think relinquish, relinquishing control for some teachers as to where they're going and what the product could look like is very challenging. Primary school teachers, if you want to stereotype a little bit, do have um, do tend to have many of them. These are the words from my former principal: um, a desire to control outcomes and control products. And so, helping people relinquishing control and the work that you're doing and some of the um, things we've touched upon here as to how do we get people off the starting block really challenging and really important but i think that if we start with a growth mindset we're going to at least be in the right frame of mind to be open to having another year of teaching experience as opposed to 16 years teaching the same thing or 16 years 
of continuously growing two different ways of looking at 16 years of teaching experience, which I know you've, you're familiar with that, 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 that distinction. Um, so a whole other branch of sort of my, my interest in work is around um, positive psychology and the role that shame plays inside of motivating learners. Of and so recently asking myself is, how do teachers feel when they're told they need to have a growth mindset and when someone makes the assumption that they don't? And and to be fair, you know, many don't. But do we get them there? How do we get them there? How do we inspire growth mindset? And my question is always, doesn't it exist? Like, what's preventing that from happening? And I want to honor that in the teachers that I meet. Because oftentimes, when I'm working with a teacher who has a very fixed mindset, who is very much about controlling those outcomes, there's some really freaking good reasons for why they outcomes and why they have and if I can figure that out and get at that root cause and work on that piece of it then we get them off the starting block but what I, I do struggle with is you know um, we are all I think kind of teaching and learning in very unique times right now when I came through my certification program we were studying Madeline Hunter we all had to have outcomes and objectives we had to have measurement in every class and it was very much the case that if my students didn't hit my outcome or objective by the end of the class period I did something wrong we're just coming out of that mentality um, and a lot of schools aren't even there yet. And so if someone is feeling very much that, you know, that evaluation matters and that they're going to be judged, or if that even existed in our school culture 10 years ago, we're still dealing with that right now. And people are kind of afraid to make mistakes. And as teachers, I think we put teachers on pedestals in our societies and that they're supposed to know everything and they're supposed to do it perfectly. And we're going to evaluate them for it um, and hold them highly accountable. And then at the same time say, why do they have such a fixed mindset and why do they want to, you know, want to control the outcomes? And so I think a big part of the work that leaders can do and people like me, especially staff developers, people have this notion that good staff development is about, you know, a lot, a lot of great resources and giving them to people and having really slides or Google slides and entertain and that we're supposed to come in and deliver stuff to people that can help them move forward. The best professional learning facilitators I work with are able to make astute observations about the system as a whole. And they are able to truly see and are interested in learning more about the teachers in front of them and attending to their needs and noticing their strengths and getting very real about how to move them off that, that starting block. Um, and, and it is it is really complex stuff because oftentimes there are really good reasons why that control is there um, or the desire for it is there and trying to remedy um, and improve that situation. That is really challenging work. And, and, you know, to be honest, there are some people who just don't belong in the field, too. And I need to be real about that as well for as much as it's probably going to gain me some criticism for saying it there are people who don't have the interest or the capacity to really go the distance i think inside of education because it is tough 
It is messy, uncertain, inefficient, um, and, and oftentimes very humbling work. And I think the more that we uh, can help people value that and see that to be humbled by your students is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. To be humbled in a lesson means that you are becoming an awesome teacher. It doesn't mean that you did it wrong. I mean, those are those are big conversations. But and we have so, such a far distance to travel there. I feel like a lot of other things going on in psychology and our kind of talk about systems thinking, that growth mindset to me is putting a lot of emphasis on the cognition happening within the head of each kid without looking at this idea of learning as a whole system of all the factors that go into it. And that can also bubble out to the way we think about teachers in our institutions that we put a lot on the head of this teacher without realizing all of the factors that go into that down to the very metrics of criteria that they're judged on. And I'm thinking particularly about a book I read this year called The Tyranny of Metrics, which really attacks this idea of best practices, which can then be individually measured. So it becomes very, very factory-like. I want to shift to something else, which is definitely relative and encapsulates a lot of this, is where you talk about, um, you write in a reflection of Reggio again, the communication, uh, complex, communicating complex ideas. And I'm really loving this kind of all-encapsulating theory that I found. See, you write, you're right, excuse me. I can't tell you how many times I listen to young writers build incredibly complex stories around the figures inside of a dollhouse. I've watched graffiti artists turn a wall into a powerful claim. And I learned just as much about gardening, cooking, advocating for social justice, and lexicography from YouTube than I do from newspapers, journals, and books. You seem to be talking about a holistic approach to literacy that in today's world where students decode more non-textual signs in a passing day than they do text. When Cubist painters started visually deconstructing the world, one of the first things they did was start to including text. But you also seem to be unlocking these ideas of humans as beasts of communication across any medium necessary from our own learning experiences in the world. Why is this so important for experiences to methods before they try to create them for students? There was like eight questions packed in there. So if you want me to take them back out one by one again. It was just the very last tail end of your question. Oh, so um, why is it so important for teachers to actually go through these experiences, this kind of holistic approach to literacy of not just decoding text, but decoding the world around them and having these multimodal forms of decoding, but also of expressing. You know, it's interesting, um, and I'm not sure where I stumbled upon it this morning, um, something that you shared earlier. What it's very interesting to think about is the role that that privilege plays inside of our use of print. We put print on a pedestal inside of our, our literacy classrooms. And I think that there's some element of privilege there 
that put print in that, that position. Why I think it's so important that, that we are using diverse media and modalities and giving people the opportunity to use them to, to express themselves is we're silencing people who have really important things to say simply because they struggle to communicate using print. And it's really interesting because we played with this a lot at the primary level with reading. We have reading experiences where we read really complex text aloud to young readers. We don't put the book in their hands, but I will read to Erlitz Webb and the kindergarten, and we'll talk about we removed the print barrier, just allow this very inexperienced reader to appreciate able to agree and they're able to appreciate in the complexity of a text we're not requiring them to negotiate them to appreciate the story why aren't we removing long enough deeply intelligent people work work with sort of to create some sound before we produce print around it and print isn't even necessary to communicate the message it's important to you know invite people to build stories and to build to to build pieces to build their poetry to act it out say to to paint something or use lego to construct some three pieces to being able to communicate well there's print is meaning and there and we see it a lot more productively when we talk that when does it make sense to lower that print barrier can experiment with meaning and terms we need to do that and the, that is really dangerous because is about power and power inside of being able to communicate, not only advocate for ourselves and for social justice, we reduce writing to pressing people who have things, distributions to make. Eluding ourselves because most consumers don't want print anymore. They want all the other stuff. There's so many other opportunities, information that are not print-based, and most people want it that way as well. And so we're sending kids out into the world, the print-comfortable kids. That was one of my biggest aha moments, is I'm working with all of these kids who are really print-comfortable, and they literally think that they're great writers because they can pound out some like 10 paragraph essay or a research paper. And they know nothing about how to convert that or translate that into a medium or a modality that an audience might actually appreciate because they don't care about their 10 page paper. That they need it given to them in a different medium or modality. That's what all the other kids have that are not print comfortable. Um, and so that's why it matters to me. And, and I think that the more teachers can assess themselves and force themselves out of the comfort zone of print um, and use other mediums and modalities themselves to communicate, just like we say, the best writing teachers write with their kids. Well, the best make writing teachers make writing, too, on their own for their own purposes. And you're not going to understand it necessarily unless you're doing it. So I have to click a million things. Microphone to stream your audio better. I, I we got through most of that. We're we're coming up on fifty five minutes, which was the time that we uh, allotted. Um, but I want to try to ask a couple more questions. Just give me a uh, a sign when it's time to disconnect. Um, you talk a lot about in uh, like the environment of of the learning space of of hacking into this um, 
writer's lab and creating a, a makerspace at the same time. And one of the questions you ask is uh, how and how and why might we approach aesthetics in the classroom? I think this is a very Reggio Emilia inspired reflection. And I wondered if you um, have approached this uh, method of yours, this way of this way of thinking uh, to classroom design of using classroom itself as a tool to express our beliefs and, and how learning happens. And, and what is the risk? So I've had much more opportunity to with the role of the environment um, and the issues of aesthetics in my own writing studio than I have inside of classrooms that I support or teachers that I support in their own classrooms. There's um, a huge focus in my world right now on flexible seating. Um, and so teachers are investigating and learning a lot about providing kids choice in terms of where they're seated in a classroom and how they're seated and what that looks like. But that is still a far cry away from what we're talking about when we're considering the influence that Reggio Emilia practitioners and what they've discovered about environment and aesthetic could have um, on our schools here in America and in, in some of the Canadian schools that I've worked in as well and in a limited way. Um, in my own writing studio, what I found hugely important was that my students designed that space. And there are some teachers who are embracing that and allowing kids to create the spaces that they're learning in. Um, in my own practice, there's been a lot of, of um, the abandoning of decoration in the classroom, where I'm not covering walls and posters anymore, but those walls are blank spaces that kids using sticky notes or boards or chart paper, um, the walls themselves are interactive and they're thinking tools that allow kids to experiment with their thoughts and also, um, you know, to tinker with them and make them transparent to people who walk by. Because if you can see what other people are doing on a wall, then they'll engage with you and it helps you seek some diverse perspectives. And Reggio Emilia, one of the things that I found very fascinating is, you know, um, the role of the atelier or the studio was significant there. And um, it's not just simply a hodgepodge of, you know, art materials and resources that kids use um, to to think and learn and express themselves. Um, aesthetic matters there very much. And one of the things that they have their students do is reorder a space before they leave it. So students might come upon a center where there are 50 different materials that are um, laid out in an, a, a beautiful fashion. Um, and there is absolutely balance and rhyme and reason and intention behind the design of that, that center, that table. 50 materials, and when you look at the table, it's just breathtaking how beautifully they're organized. And then the kids tear into them and they use them as learners. And the expectation is that they will put that table back together the way that the teacher did they need to reorder those materials and create a new aesthetic. And that is something that they value there and that they, they deliberately, you know, kind of coach. I don't know that we're doing that a great deal inside of, of the schools that I support just yet. Um, but it's something that, that I look forward to seeing happen because I think that it, it will eventually. I see that Austin is holding up signs uh, in the camera. Yeah. <laughs> I 
it says, have you ever wanted to travel to Colombia? Um, I'm going to squeeze in one more question if we have what? time. Uh, so this. Oh, idea- sure, I do. Okay, cool. So um, you write in several places uh, this idea of carefully curating artifact, of hanging artifact in the classroom that are basically inquiry pieces, that students will approach these pieces and by the nature of their richness of the knowledge they have embedded will unlock those. I recently interviewed a tour guide for the um, the American Natural History Museum in New York by self-selecting of his own choice from any of the artifacts in the entire museum. And this to me is like this, the, the perfect kind of learning atmosphere of to send students into this area and have them carefully select uh, different artifacts. I think Austin's saying goodbye. Austin, thank you for joining us and I hope we can have some kind of recap. Bye, Austin. Thank, thank you both for this. And uh, I will, I've already been uh, looking up a couple of things on your blog, Angela, and I, I'm definitely going to be in touch because there's uh, further thought definitely to, and things to be spoken of. And I definitely, I can't wait. Forward. It was so good to meet you. It's great to find uh, wonderful individuals that uh, in different parts of the world. Absolutely. Uh, you know, in 2018, um, the walls in this hall do not um, preclude that we can't work with people far and wide. So again, I appreciate your time and effort. Yeah. And what you're doing is is wonderful and really aligned with with what I believe. So thank you for putting this together, Chris, and connecting yeah. us. It was so good to meet you. Take care, you as well. Bye bye. So Austin, you were the first person I thought of when I said someone who's already framed and walked through a lot of the steps that we've been talking about for years and done some uh, projects with, um, but I didn't realize that someone had already, you know, practiced a lot of these things already. So getting back to the idea of, of carefully selected artifact, um, this is like my dream of what, what field trips should be, not just like episodic events, but sort of experiences uh, that you design these critical events, as I think James Wood is his name describes them that students could self-select from different artifacts and then use those throughout their course of study from the inquiry that they pull out from, from these artifacts themselves. Um, how, what does this look like? Is this a reflection from your visit to Reggio or are these things that you have practiced already? this idea students well, can then... I, th- I think that the blog post that you were reading spoke specifically to how we tend to design centers in the classrooms that I have been in. Um, When teachers, particularly at the primary level, design a center, they will often design it around a theme, like the Four Seasons. And when children visit that center, what they usually find there are prefabricated and what Diane Cashin refers to as pre-cut materials. There will be a little kit that has foam pieces in it so that they can build a snowman. And then there will be a book so that they can read about winter. And then there will be a worksheet where they fill out information. And it's all very pre-cut and prescribed. And the centers change every couple of weeks in response to whatever theme we're studying or concept we're studying in class. What struck me about Reggio Emilia is that the ateliers that they designed, which essentially functioned in the same way we want our centers to here in America to some degree, the materials were loose parts that were very dynamic and that could be used to deepen and express understanding in a variety of contexts. So the ateliers didn't necessarily change. The materials were not pre-cut. They were loose parts that were carefully chosen 
Um, but what changed were the provocations. And the provocations were really rich and they challenged learners and they invited inquiry. So that's what that post was about. And another thing that, that I learned there that I heard that was so striking is one of the pedagogistas made the statement one afternoon that in Reggio Emilia, they hang questions in the air. They don't interrogate children from the front of the room. And that was striking to me. And it, it, it it's very much about inviting students to work with artifacts and notice the questions that hang inside of them. And what was fascinating was watching certain teachers and practitioners pair certain artifacts together. So for instance, if I handed you a copy of, I don't know, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, I handed you a copy of that book and I handed you a figurine um, that included a house and maybe another figurine that was the magnifying glass. And I said, the house and the magnifying glass are my questions. The book is where I want you to find your answers. Do you see how that's like hanging a question in the air and how those artifacts are provocations that are sort of tight, but they're loose enough to allow for interpretation. Um, and what, kids come back with, what learners come back with, is very diverse and very rich, perhaps. And it also, when we approach learning that way, we inspire the use of metaphor and simile and personification. Um, and it, it, it just leads to really rich conversations with kids and, and the complexity inside of their answers is a better things um, that might be more like referring to with the, the use of artifacts is I worked with writers in the spring to create what's called an argument table and kids had to choose a topic. So let's say gun control in the United States and they weren't allowed to talk or write. They had to bring in an artifact that expressed their stance so a student might bring in, you know, uh, an article from the newspaper or a piece of artwork um, that expresses their stance on gun control. And those who were challenged to push against their thinking could not use writing or and they couldn't speak. They had to go find other artifacts that challenged that artifact. And the table would start to grow over time and with the artifacts that supported the speaker, the original speaker's point of view and artifacts that could challenge it. Um, but it was basically silent and there was no print involved. So the second conversation I would like to have with you is more about what you're getting into now. And I think this is like the overlay of, of design thinking in, in learning practices that when I approach design thinking, I think I had a very similar uh, reaction that you did is that, oh, a lot of this was already in my teaching belief. A lot of it already comes from, from Dewey and pragmatism, um, but packaging it kind of in different ways. So a lot of the stacking of the deck and design thinking methods of putting in improv activities that get everyone thinking divergently or the reverse of putting in activities that get everyone thinking convergently. Um, I think these are a lot of things to unpack. And I, I know that you you did mention that in the opening of your book as well, is that that when, when you approach design thinking, you found that, oh, well, this already fits my, my teaching belief. These are based on on teaching. One in particular was the of inquiry of, you know, affinity mapping and getting everyone's thought out and then affinity mapping it into groups. And my experience with that has been very similar to your, your ideas with using strong artifact of students um, finding their own artifact. So making it kind of like a treasure hunt 
of bringing their own artifact to a center of doing a see, think, wonder routine to get at not just what everyone's observations are, interpretations, but then getting into their wonder. Um, and then going through this process, I found basically three things. One was that students inquiry, once they're giving a space and chance to select and wonder, that whole idea of voice and choice was so much more profound that what, than anything we would have prompted them with. Yeah. Uh, of two, how the questions they created could then be a fin into that we as teachers had already pre-wrote for them. And the third big surprise was how efficiently it all came together, that it was simply a matter of combining a library period with a social studies period of having a teacher at each center. So you have very small groups with very defined facilitator roles. And that within two class periods, we had basically designed six weeks of inquiry that then drove the entire the project after that. So these were things that were, were very simple. They, they really just depended on a belief system that students can create their own inquiry, yeah. that this is possible to do within a standards-based system, but that it's worth investing time, especially in these immersive periods at the beginning of studies that are often yeah. very strict, like these, this is how you will be graded. This is you know what, what your assessment's going to be about. This is what the standards are. And those are all valid things to have selected and ways to start uh, our, or whatever we're going to, to do. So, sorry, I didn't mean to, to spit all that out, but reading through your work no. has really provoked a lot of things that I've thought or, or written or read about uh, in very recent times. And so uh, I know that you have written several books. I've only dabbled into one. I would say for many people, go to your blog and go to your Facebook group as great places to start. Yeah. Where would you suggest people find you, connect? Uh, what should they read first? Uh, where would you direct them? So I try, I haven't, I take summers off from blogging, but I try to make a lot of my uh, work on the ground transparent in, on my blog. So I try as much as possible to um, share blog posts there that kind of illuminate new thinking, but also illustrate how I'm doing it inside of a classroom or with a group of teachers. And so those are bite-sized things that people can kind of, you know, read at their leisure and, and kind of get acquainted with this thinking and work that way. Um, the books are great as well. And I intentionally chose to publish through Hack Learning because Mark Barnes was very careful about adopting a framework for those books that makes them easy to digest. So I intentionally chose to publish, publish with Hack Learning because I knew that I was trying to communicate some hard stuff, some really cerebral stuff, but I want to communicate it in a way that teachers who are very busy um, can consume pretty easily. And so the books, I think, are a quick read and they have um, great supplemental resources attached to them. But the blog posts can take you there, too. And I try to talk about this stuff often in my Facebook group, which is Building Better Writers. The neat thing about Building Better Writers is um, there are teachers there who have been trying to implement um, all of these ideas, whose perspectives are diverse and their experiences are diverse. And they're very generous in sharing their thinking and their work. Um, and I learn more. And they're just 
such a warm and welcoming community. There is a spinoff group of a smaller group of people from Building Better Writers who wanted to get interested in documentation. And so there's a, a private group for them as well. The documentation project group is there. But yeah, my blog is a good place. I try to hit up Twitter every day a couple of times um, to see who um, is hanging out there. And we talk shop a little bit uh, there as well. Um, and I'm, I'm always willing, you know, to answer questions. I try to, I'm an open source girl. I share all of my stuff. Right. Uh, and so if I'm designing resources and materials for a school, um, I will usually share them on my Facebook page as well. And, um, I try to keep things as open source as possible and I'm all into sharing what we do. Uh, and so, I sorry, what services uh, do you offer? So, for example, if a school in South America or in one of the other nationals is interested in approaching you, do you offer consulting workshops, keynotes? Like, what is your slew of? Uh, yeah. So for the last 10 years, um, I've been an independent consultant and my work is varied. All of the work that I do is customized for the system that I'm supporting. I've done a lot of keynoting and a lot of event-based or single-day workshops on introductory level things for for teachers. And I also do sustained work inside of schools as well as in the form of literacy coaching. I offer make writing pop-up studios where I will travel to places and spend a week with teachers and kids. Um, inside of a workshop experience so that um, we're kind of a, a shared learning community in that way. Um, and so, yeah, I do my Monday through Friday is usually professional development and it comes in all shapes and sizes and for all grade levels. I'm mostly teachers. Um, I will sometimes work with content area teachers around integrating literacy practices into their classrooms. And I have a lot of experience with curriculum and assessment design as well. Um, so yeah, usually when I'm traveling, it's event-based stuff, but I do it. Cool. Um, well, thank you for taking the time. Uh, if you would stick around just for yeah, a minute for uh, in the recording, uh, and then uh, I'll have a couple other things. Okay, thanks.